If you have your Bible, you can find your way to Genesis 19. Um, this, this summer we're going through a series looking at the life of Abraham, just trying to, to find out what is this amazing journey of faith that Abraham took, what happened in that life to give us kind of a, a foundation of what God has been doing since then. What was he starting in the life of Abraham that now we, we kind of see that we're a part of that, that we're a realization of the promise given to Abraham um, and then ultimately through Christ that we are all included into that um, in, inheritance and lineage from there as, as far as a spiritual aspect instead of a thinnest, physical one. And so um, today we find ourselves in, in Genesis 19, if we're honest, a lot of times we like to skip passages like this because it's got everything that we don't want to talk about but we have to deal with it. And so um, I'm just going to start by reading it again, just like last week. We're going to read the whole chapter because you have to get everything that happens. If you pick and choose, then I feel like sometimes we, we talk about what we want to instead of looking at the whole context. Like, let's look at the whole story of what happens so that way we can get a bar- better bearing on what's happening as far as God's wrath that we see poured out today. And that's really what we're, we're looking at. It's just God's wrath poured out on sin. So if you will... Follow along. We're going to read all of chapter 19, Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 through 38. So um, follow along as I read. In Genesis 19, 1, it says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting by the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face, face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house, and he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, or the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may know them. Lot went out to meet them at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and he has become a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. They pressed, then they pressed hard against the man, Lot, and drew near to break the door down. The men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house with the small and great, so they were themselves out groping for the door. Then the man said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, up, get out of this place, for the Lord has, is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Take up your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought, out, brought him out and set him outside the city as they brought them out. One said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life, but I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city near here is near enough to flee to and is a little one, let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. Verse 23, the sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities and all the valley and the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he, looked, where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. 
So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst and overthrew when he overthrew the cities which, he had lived, which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up to Zoar and lived in the hills, out of Zoar and lived in the hills and his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters and the firstborn said to the other, our father is old and there is not a man on earth to come to us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine and we will lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So that, so they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. If you will pray with me as we ask the Lord to guide our time today. Father God, we, God, we thank you that, that you've given us your truth. God, I just pray that today, that, that in a text that seems so complicated and, and difficult to handle, God, that we would treat your truth the way it needs to be treated. God, that we would learn from what you've given us, your truth, that our lives would be impacted. Just pray that your spirit would move as only your spirit can, would touch our hearts in a manner that only as precise as your spirit can. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when we, when we look at that, it, it's, you, you have to admit, it's kind of a crazy story. This is one of those chapters, like I said earlier, like you'd rather just kind of go away with that, right? Okay, we see what's happening. Let's go to something good because the good stuff's coming in Genesis after this. We see Isaac is born and all, the, and we see some amazing things. But I think if we don't appropriate look at the entire context of this chapter, then we do ourselves a disservice. Because if we're honest, a lot of times we, we look at the news or we scroll through our news feed. We see this, whatever, however we get our news and information, we look at it and we think, and, and maybe I've thought this, maybe you have too, that, that what in the world is the world coming to, right? Like, can it get any worse? Like, have you, you thought that? That it seems to be that every single day there's something else happening. Every single day there's another shooting being reported or there's an act of terror somewhere and it's just our culture is going down. Is there any way it can get worse? And, and when we look at that, sometimes we can realize that maybe there, or, or have this idea that maybe there's no hope, like that, that we're just in this. And, and what's interesting and what's good to look at a chapter like this is because we realize the sinfulness of man has been around long before we are. Like when we look at this story, when we look at this, we realize that so often nothing's changed, right? That, that we see the exact same things happening in Genesis 19 that are happening today in a manner as far as being overtaken by sin. And so in a, in a sense, it's, it's good to go back to that because we realize that there, we're, we're not in a, in a worse part of time. We're in a sinful part of time because we're all human. And that that's what's reigning now. But thankfully, we understand in the gospel that there's something more to that. And so as we look at this thing today, we see this, we, we need to see this idea and it should, it should push us into a, a purposeful pursuit of God because we know in God is the only place that we find true resting, we find true strength to live in an age that we now live, to stand firm on who he's called us to live. And so when we look at this today, we're gonna realize that that we, we see through Lot a different type of hospitality that he showed. We're going to see that we're going to look at his deliberate assimilation into that society. And then ultimately we see the depth of depravity of the human heart. And so as we look at all those, I just urge you to, to open, to come with an open mind so that we can actually just, let's, let's learn from this. Let's apply this text that we might want to avoid. And let's apply it today so we can see how it then impacts our life. And so the first thing that we want to look at is this, this different hospitality. Last week, the, the whole focus of Genesis 18 was Abraham showing hospitality, right? They, they had the two angels and the Lord. They met him. He was at, we find him at the tent. 
and he ran out to meet them. And we go, well, the first of chapter 19, we see Lot's hospitality. If you look at verse 1 through 3, we see this hospitality that Lot has then shown. But, but it's a little different. And what we need to understand in that is that Lot had, he had the right idea, but he had the wrong heart. He had the, the wrong heart, the wrong motives, if you will. We need to have the right hearts and the right mindset if we're going to have the opportunity and actually going to be hospitable. Because he does the right thing, but it just seems a little off when you read it. And so this, just, let's just look at what he was doing. Okay, the first thing we see that he was sitting at the gate. That's not that big of a deal, right? He was, he was where he was supposed to be. He could see them coming. The angels are approaching. We see them coming. There's some differences that you might want to bring out that the fact that it's at evening and not during the day. And, and some commentators will say that's showing the, the depth of, that Moses is trying to pull out the darkness within Sodom, that, that now it's at night, he's approaching at night, that Lot's living in the night and in the darkness. And so, but he's in the evening, it's the dark. He sees them, and at this point, it's so good, right? It's not that bad. He was sitting by the gate of Sodom, and when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself to the faith. Seems pretty good, right? That he gets up, but what we need to understand is that when he meets them, he was slow to meet them. If you contrast that to the hospitality we said that Abraham is showing us, Abraham ran to them, well, he just kind of gets up. And, and really, if we're honest, a lot of us do that, right? You're sitting in your driveway, or if you're sitting outside, and someone shows up, you're just like, oh, I guess I gotta get up. And you just kind of get up, and you kind of just, just walk casually over to them, right? Instead of actually making an effort, you go to them, you just kind of, oh, well, I'll get there. And, and immediately, those people, and maybe you've been the recipient of the person that's just walking up, and you're like, oh, well, I didn't want to come by anyways, right? But, but you, you, you can tell that difference, you could tell that difference that he just simply gets up. He doesn't run to them. He doesn't show this excitement. And so he has the right motives, he ha or he has the right response. It's just not the right motives. His heart just doesn't seem to be in it. He says the right things, right? He says, your servant. Look at verse 2. He says, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. He's, he's acknowledging who they are. He's saying, turn aside to your servant's house. He doesn't say, come to my house. He says, no, come to your servant's house. But when we understand that, we realize that he doesn't really have any passion. Right? So he might serve, but there's no passion in his serving. Like he just gets up, he meets them, he said, come to my house, your servant. And it's like, there, he, it's like he's serving without a passion. He's just there. He just says, yeah, come to my house. And then verse 3, we see the rest of it, right? He pressed them because they wanted to stay in the square. He knew the city he was living in and said, no, you need to be in my house. And he said, he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside, and he entered his house. And then look at the last part of verse 3. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. Okay, so right there, let's contrast that with what we saw Abraham. Abraham, what? He had Sarah bake a bunch of bread, like seven liters. We talked about there's a lot of bread going on. He went and killed the calf. He got the best thing. He brought out the, the milk and cheese. And Lot, he has a feast, and it's unleavened bread. So what we can see in that, a way to, to look at this, is he prepared the easy feast. Right? He went and got the easy things to fix instead of actually investing in his hospitality. It was a different type of hospitality here. He, he, and you might have been a recipient of that too. It doesn't make you feel real welcome if people are like, oh, we'll just, we kind of have this, let's just make do. Right? We want to be hospitable. We want to serve people with passion and our hearts are in it. And so we want to give them the best that we have, not the easiest. And that's what Lot's doing. These men here are coming and we see that, wait a second. He's preparing the easy feast. He's serving without passion. He's slow to meet them. He's really, his heart's not in it. And you can see that the way Moses has given this text. He's, he's showing the people that he's talking to that there's a difference in the hospitality. And the difference is that it's a heart problem. It's not all that bad, but he misses the point because his heart's not in it. And, and really, Warren Wiersbe says that. He describes Lot. says that he, Lot called himself a servant, yet do not see him hastening to prepare a meal. Like he calls himself a servant, but he doesn't really do anything quickly. So it's like, so are you really, or are you just saying that because you're supposed to? Are you just going through the motions because you feel like you're supposed to show hospitality, or do you actually care about the people that you're welcoming in? There's a different hospitality to what's happening here with Lot because it's a heart problem. And so then the, the easy question is to ask yourself, when you seek to show hospitality, which what we're called to, Romans 12, the very last thing that Paul describes a true Christian being as is one that seeks to show hospitality. If you're seeking to show hospitality, what hospitality is seen? Does your hospitality resemble Abraham where you go over and beyond because you have an opportunity to serve someone? Or is it like Lot where you're just kind of like, yeah, I guess I'm supposed to do it. Right? Because last week, talking about how hospitality 
hospitality, it could have been easy to just go and say, yeah, we're supposed to do that. And so they ended up like Lot. Instead of like Abraham, where you have your heart poured out. And so what do people see? Because, and then ask yourself this, the, the two angels, they were entertained by both, right? Who do you think they felt more welcome in? Lot's house or Abraham's? Right? And so what do people feel when they come into your home? Do they feel welcome? Do they feel that, that you're for them, that you're going to show hospitality as an overflow of what God's done for us? Or is it just kind of, oh, they're doing it because I'm here. They'd really rather me be gone, right? And so you, you, you would like, how long do we have to stay? You want to try to find that exit? Like you're having a conversation. You're like, oh, well, man, I guess we need to go. Or do you want to just stay? And, and if your hospitality is good, just a fair warning, if you truly show hospitality, people aren't going to want to leave. So just be ready for it, right? Be ready for it, right? Be ready for them to stay, right? And actually, if you look at this, if you, if you look at what's happening, Lot wants them to leave, right? In verse two, then you may rise early and go on your way, right? He's like, just stay here tonight, get up early and take off, right? He's not really in it. But if you're actually showing hospitality the way we're supposed to, people are gonna wanna stay. They're gonna wanna come to your house. You're gonna have people coming over. So just be ready for it. Embrace it. Acknowledge the fact that we get to serve others. And what an amazing way to love people is to show them hospitality. In a, in a, in a culture that's individual, that you'd rather stay in your house, you might not have neighbors that you actually talk to because you never see them because they're inside. We need to move to the outside of our homes and build relationships and love people through hospitality because that shows them something that's different than anywhere else. And it's not just this, this legalistic, do this and you'll be good. This should be out of an overflow of what God's done for us that we show hospitality. And see, sadly, a lot of times we get into this idea of lot where we do the things that we think we have to do, but ultimately it's just a result of just slowly assimilating into a, a culture that, that is contrary to the gospel witness. And that's what we see happening with Lot. If you look at this, I say deliberate assimilation because I don't think that, that what happens in Lot's life is just by random facts. I don't, I don't think it's just, just happening. So, so when you look at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, you look at what's happening here, do you, have, do you, do you realize what, do you, do you ask yourself, let me do it this, do you ask yourself how did Lot end up in this situation? Like what in the world happened? right? Especially when we read further about how he tries to pacify the crowd, which we'll talk about in a second. Like, what happened in this man's life, right? And so, let's look at it, because it was a slow fade, in a sense. If you look at Genesis 13, we talked about this uh, several weeks ago. Genesis 13, at 10, it said, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley. This is when they had too much stuff. If you remember, they had too much stuff. Abraham, or Abram at this point, and Lot, they had too much stuff. They, the land couldn't su- support them. So Urban says, it's not worth this. Choose. I'll go one way, you go the other, but I'll let you choose. And so in verse 10 of chapter 13, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord. Like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's good, right? It hadn't been destroyed yet. It's an it's amazing thing. So what does he do? He chooses that. So he goes into the valley. He chooses the whole valley because it's well watered. He chooses from an external beauty we talked about. But then if you look down, you see the next, the next phase. Like he's chosen the whole valley. But then if you look in verse 12 of chapter 13, it says, Abram settled land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. Okay, so we see in there the little switch. He picked the whole valley, but he chose to settle near the, near the cities. Right? And then that last part of verse, or verse 13 gives us a little clue. He says, now the men of Sodom were wicked. Great sinners against the Lord. So he knew what was happening there. Like he could see that they were, he knew. And so what does he do? He chooses the whole valley, one, and then he gets a little bit closer. He's like, well, I'm going to be near the city. Right? I'm going to be near the city. And, and, and a lot of times at this point, we just think, well, you're supposed to be around sinners, right? If we're going to be a light in a dark world, we have to be there. But then look what happens. If you switch over, turn over to verse 14, or chapter 14, you look at verse 12, right? They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. Okay, so now all of a sudden he's not near the cities, he's moved into the city. Now the only reason that he was taken, and if you remember chapter 14, this is when Abram has to go rescue him because the, the kings led by Keterleomer have come in, they've taken over Sodom, they've taken them all into exile, and Lot was taken with them, why? Because he was in the city. They took the city and they made him go, because why? Now he's not just near the city, he's in the city. So what was the move for? 
Why did he get closer? Why did he move into the city? He had, he, could, he easily could be considered one of the wealthiest people there, right? I don't know how much wealth and possessions you have to have for two people not to support the land, but I think it's a lot, right? And so now he's, he's chosen, now I'm going to live in the city. Maybe he, he has his servants out of the city and well, I'm going to go live in here. Like he's living the high life there while they're working his stuff. But there's something about it that, that he's moving closer and closer into the city. And then finally, when we get back here to chapter 19, he's at the gate of the city. And so if we look at what's happening in the custom here is some of the people that were at the gate, they were the, like the noble people. They were the ones that would welcome in. So they were important people in the city. So no longer is he not just near the cities, he's in the cities, but he's in the cities in a place of importance. So what do you have to do to be at the gate and be in leadership in a city like Sodom? What what is happening there? And what we need to understand that in an easy way to we can check our own hearts in our time by looking at what happened a lot is we have to be aware of our hearts slowly moving towards the passions and the desires of the world. That at some point, we have to see where we're kind of slowly fading away. That's why I love the song that we sang, that prone to wonder, right? You feel it? Do you feel your desire just slowly taking away? And it's subtle. It's subtle. And that's exactly what we see happen to Lot from chapter 13 to 19. It was just this subtle draw closer and closer to the things that were wicked. Warren Wiersbe reminds us that worldliness is not a matter of physical geography, but a heart attitude. And see, that's the difference we see with Lot. It wasn't that he was in the city, but his heart was there. His heart was captive by the city. And how do we know that? Because a lot of times, if you're like me, how do you know that his heart was captive by the city, right? There's a lot of people that look at this story and we forget that Lot is just as sinful as everyone else. Like we, try to th- we talk about the men of Sodom being corrupt and sinners, but Lot's just, he's right there with them. And how do we know that? Look at, look at verse 12 through 14. Look at verse 12 through 14 real quick. It says, Then the men said to Lot, the men, these are the angels, said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone in the city? Bring them out of this place. Like, hey, we're about to destroy it. Who, you get your people, right? Get your people, gather them up, bring them in here. We're going to destroy it because the outcry against its people has become great to the Lord. So if you remember Abram, Abraham was like, if there's 10 people, well, clearly he didn't have 10, mem- 10 members of his family. Like, the 10 wasn't found. We're going to destroy this place. So he went out to his son-in-law's, they were about to marry his daughters and said, up, get out of this place before the Lord is about to destroy it, right? And they seem their sons-in-law to be jesting. If you have NIV or something else, it probably says that he was, they thought he was joking, right? And so there's one part of we know that he's really not in there because he's not leading his family well enough for them to actually believe, hey, this is about to happen, right? This is what's happening. And they had to know that the, that the men just blinded the crowd, right? If something like that happens, everyone knows. You're not, like his son-in-laws weren't there thinking, Oh, man, they were blinded? No, they knew what was happening, and they still thought he was joking. They still thought he was joking. And then it gets worse. Look at verse 16. But he lingered. Right? Does, does that strike you as odd? Why? Why would he stay there? He just saw what's happening. He's just told by the angels who just blinded everyone else, hey, get your people. We're going to destroy this place because the Lord, the outcry has come great against the Lord. And then what does he do? He's lingering. Right? Don't you think you would be in a hurry? I would like to think that if I heard that, like, I'm gone, right? Like, we can get the stuff later, or we can just buy new stuff, right? There's, there's a Walmart somewhere else. There's Ross somewhere else. We'll just go get new clothes, right? He just, but what's he do? He lingers. Why? I have to believe that because his heart was desiring to be there. He was captivated by this. He was just like them in the sense that he was wanting so much what was happening and the desires the flesh was so strong and it had such a hard pull on him that he didn't want to go. He lingers. Like, seriously? At that point, they should have just left him, right? Like, well, if you weren't ready, sorry. Which right there we see that the fact that Lot even gets out is an amazing act of grace of God. And we'll talk about that at the end. But so switch this to ourselves. What do you find yourself being drawn to so much so that you're lingering in your obedience to God? That you're, that you're lingering, you're holding on to something because so often we rationalize everything. I always go back to that. My dad always told me, if you have to rationalize it, it's not right. And I hated it when he said that because it always caught me, right? He knew exactly when to say it. 
He knew exactly, like, I was being an idiot and I was doing something stupid. He's like, well, you have to rationalize it. And I'm like, oh, why would he say that? Right? But it was so true. So what is it that you're rationalizing right now that really is nothing more than you just deliberately assimilating and saying, well, that's not that bad. If you, if you can look at the, the history of the last 60 or so years in our culture, you see a slowly gradual acceptance of things that would have always been considered sin, yet, oh, it's not that bad. Right? How often do we watch movies that are full of violence and nudity? Well, it's not that bad. Seriously? That's how we want to be. And then we call people to live a different set-apart life. Like we're, we're, we want to be Christian. Like, but you're just like me. You watch the exact same things of me. And I'm telling you that, that this was something that, that I had to deal with before I could tell you that. Like this week was not fun for me. Looking through this, thinking, what are the things that I think are amazing? that I watch and think, well, it's not that bad. Like, I can fast forward. Like, if you're watching Netflix you, or, or Amazon Prime, you can go the 10-second head start, right? You hit that button. Well, why do we even need to do that? Like, if it's a show to where we need to fast forward, should we even be watching it? And that's not just saying that we should avoid culture, but what are we rationalizing? What are you comfortable with now that you wouldn't have been if you were being faithful to how we've been called to live? And that, that goes for, for men and women, guys. You need to guard your hearts because we're driven. And if you notice all the sins in this chapter, almost all of them are sexual. Did you notice that? I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but, but how often do we rationalize sexual things in our entertainment because it's entertainment? Well, it's not that bad. It could be worse. The rating could be worse, right? But we do that. How many times do you see as, as women, you're, you're not off the hook, but it's not your fault, but part of it is how often do you, do you rationalize the way people dress or what you wear? Well, it's the guy, they shouldn't look. Well, you're asking them to, right? That, it doesn't mean uh, far too often women are, are accused of being the problem for men. It's, no, we're on the hook, but why are you dressing that way, right? You have to ask yourself, how are you gonna teach your daughters to dress in a culture that says just whatever? right? We have to understand that at some point we can get caught up into this slowly moving towards the desires and the passions of the world instead of being faithful to the one who's called us to live, set apart. That's how you can be aliens in this world like we're supposed to. You can still be here. It's, it's by allowing yourself to stand above that, to not rationalize why we watch things or why we do things. And that's, that, there's, there's a lot of that. Like I had to cut out some shows or think, man, well, how did I make it through that? Like a year ago, I watched this. How did I make it through that? Well, it doesn't mean you go beat yourself up, but it means that you look at it and think, you know, I understand that. Now you can start moving that way. You can stop the slow fade into a degraded culture and rise above and be faithful to the one that's called us. Because ultimately, we have to realize the depth of the depravity. You can't look at this passage and think that, that sin's not crazy right? Because it's a crazy chapter, right? It was one of those, do we read it all or not? And that's why I chose to read it all because you need to see this, right? And if it wasn't shocking to you, then you need to check your heart right now because there's some shocking aspects to that. But if you just read that and you're like, that's really in the Bible? Yes, it is. It's there, right? And so really what I want to do is there's really four major aspects of sin that we see in that. And so I want to talk about those, but then I want to try to bring them back into our lives. And so what can we learn from that even if we're not guilty of that. Because there's some of these sins that, that if, if you're guilty of a couple of these, then we need to talk because it's bad, right? Like, it's not okay. And so that's, that's my plan. So come along with me. It'll be interesting. It'll be fun. I think it's informative, though, that we do that. And the first one, excuse me, the first one that we see is really just an unbridled or unrepentant homosexuality, right? Look at verse four. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So they're coming out, they surround the house. They know what's happened. They know someone's come in. Whether or not they knew they were angels or not, it doesn't matter. Someone had come in, and then what do they do? They called out to Lot, where are the men who have come to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Know them, ESV, probably every other version that you have says have sex with them. Right? And to know them is to know them. Like that's an intimate knowledge, which is a good thing when you go into Romans 8 and we know that God knew us. That this is intimate idea. But here, what's happening? They're completely overtaken by their passions. 
They surrounded the house. There's one purpose, right? It's to get to those men because of their unbridled homosexual idea. And you have to remember, you have to realize what's happening here, right? The name of the act is named after the city today. It wasn't just, oh, it's a little bit. No, this is complete saturation. But what we need to understand is what happens in verse nine. This is how we bring it to ourselves. This is how we can call sin, sin. This is how we can live in a culture that says that, that, that homosexuality is fine. We have Christians that say that it's okay, like we can differ on that. Absolutely not. And here's why, and here's how we need to approach that. We can, we can be firm in God's truth. I have no problem standing in that. But so often we've just declared it without giving a reason why. And so that causes us to lose our witness. Look at verse nine. But they said, stand back. These are the people that were around him. Lot comes out, says, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn and has become a judge. Right, right there, if you see something, you realize that, that there was a little bit of part of Lot that they still didn't consider him one of their own. Maybe he wasn't drawn to the same homosexual desires. But there's something about that and what we need to understand that gives us a direct application today in our culture is that we must build relationships with people if we're going to speak the truth. And what they're doing here is they're drawing, verse nine is like, you're not one of us, so don't judge us. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever talked to someone that, that has suffering with, they're, they're dealing with same-sex attraction and all this stuff, and they're like, don't judge me, right? You've probably had if you've actually tried to encounter Why? Maybe it's because you don't have a relationship with them. Some of my closest friends that I used to, to work with at the high school are, are lesbian. They haven't come to church, and I don't think they will. But you know what? I get to speak to the gospel every time I talk to them because they trust me. And they, they're still at this point where, oh, but we can differ on that, and I can call them back to that, and I can love them through it. But if I just condemned them, we wouldn't have a conversation. It wouldn't happen. And so we have to realize what verse 9 is pointing to us is that you have to have a relationship. You can't just throw out condemnation because you don't know those people. You don't know how ingrained they think that is. And so actually love people. Show hospitality so that eventually you might be able to speak the truth. Because if we believe what we say we believe here at Watershed, it, it was not us that saved people anyways. So let's build relationships and pray and lament over their sin that God might draw them to it. The next one we see is, is probably, for me, honestly, it's the worst. And it's Lot offering his daughters to the crowd. Right? In verse 6, Lot went out to the men at the entrance and shut the door behind him. So he's going to go try to, let's calm this down. Which you'd be freaked out, right? All of a sudden, all the men of the city are coming, coming to you. They surround your house. You're like, what in the world's going on? So you're going to go out. He's trying to be the man of the house. Go out, take care of this. But then what does he do? He says, I beg you, brothers, do not act so wickedly. Like He's trying to call them to repentance. Say, don't, don't do this. But then he screws it up, right? Look at verse 8. I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you. And do them as you please. What? I, I read that and I'm like, did I read it this, the right way? Like, is that actually his response? But doesn't that seem crazy? Like, what in the world happened to him? That dude's lost his mind, right? He's not, he's not just saying, oh, it's a, it's a mob bent on sexual desires. He said, no, just take my daughters. Like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, dude needs to be punched, right? If we're honest, like, you gotta be kidding me. Like, he, they need to take their daughters away from him, right? There's no way. But what's crazy about it and what it might not seem to you first glance is he's actually trying to do the right thing. He just does it in a completely wrong way. He's trying, he, he's trying to protect the people in his house, but he goes to the extreme, right? It's like, what in the world would you do? And so if you're looking at this thinking, I don't know how that applies to my life, maybe Matthew Henry will help when he says, it's true of two evils, we should choose the less, must choose the less, but of two sins, we must choose neither, nor ever do evil that good may come from it. That's that last part of that quote of why I put that in there if you're following on the notes in the app. But never do evil that good may come from it. So what he's doing is he's offering a sin to try to make good come out of it. And we can never go that far. We can never look at our life and say, well, maybe if I do this, even though it's a sin, it's gonna be all right. 
right? He had the right idea as far as protecting those, but he completely screwed it up, right? And it's absurd that it happened, but that's, that's the, the depth of our depravity. Is like he thought that was okay. Like, here, let's do this, right? And so it's like, you've got to be kidding me. But what happens in our culture right now, if we're dealing with these two sins, is right now we say, we'll compartmentalize and say, well, homosexuality is bad, but if you're, you know, cohabitating, having sex within a heterosexual, that's all right. It's the same thing Lot's doing, right? He's replacing homosexuality with heterosexuality. It doesn't matter. It's out of that. And so we can't just replace one sin for another sin and think that good's going to come out of it. Sin leads to death, right? The wages of sin is death. So we look at that, we have to realize we have to build relationships with people. We have to find a way that's not giving in to sin or allowing sin to happen to bring about a better thing, right? There's no better option when it's sin. We choose neither. We don't choose the best. Then the next one. Sorry, we got two more. I feel like I'm slowing down. Sorry. I've been trying to go faster, by the way. I've been preaching too long, but sorry if you feel like that. My bad. Fair warning. All right, two more. All right, the next one's the death of Lot's wife, right? And this is probably the strangest death in the, book, in, the, in, the, in the whole Bible, right? It's just weird, right? What in the world? Like, right, verse 17, here's, here's to kind of give to it, and then we'll talk about it. Verse 17 is the command, right? Verse 17, you should highlight this because this is an amazing thing that we should do in our life. And as they brought them, one said, so brought them out. So remember, Lot's lingering. They had to physically make him leave. And then he says, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. There's the command. Escape for your life. Don't look back. All right? Fast forward to verse 26. But Lot's wife, behind him, looked back, and she became a pillar of salt. What in the world is going on there, right? Do you look at that and say, it's, it's strange, isn't it? Why a pillar of salt? You ever think about that? Have you ever seen kind of how they do pillars of salt? If you've been, um, uh, Northern Africa does this a lot. Um, they're literally just a, a pile of salt, a little pillar. That's how they trade them and all that stuff. Have you ever seen that? It doesn't look like salt, we think. But it's like, really? But first, I want to deal with something else. Why did she look back? Have you ever wondered why? What caused her to look back? What caused it? Was, was that she desired the things that she's leaving, right? Like, if they, if they were wealthy like they were, she probably had some good stuff, right? Like, what's, what am I leaving back? Like, she had to run. They had to leave quickly. And so is it desire for the stuff that she had? Is it maybe just leaving her home? Like we've been, we've been roaming around, finally chose the valley, now we're in the city, kind of got everything settled in the right way, and then all of a sudden we're having to leave. Is it the people? Did, did she have a relationship with those people? And then all of a sudden, man, I can't leave that back. Or was it just simple desires? Really, it doesn't matter. I think it's a desire. I think we can look at the desire of what's happening in her heart. And then the punishment for that, and really the, the reason she's punished is she's disobedient. Okay, verse 27, or verse 17, don't look back. Verse 26, she looks back. That's, that's the sin. But it's the root under the sin that we need to worry about and that, that needs to bring it back to us is that, that there was something in her that caused her to disobey. And so often we as Christians, we have a good idea of fixing the surface level stuff without getting to the depth of our sin. If you, you've, if you heard me talk about it or other people, sometimes they talk about the sin within the sin. What, what's the underlying sin that caused you to act in a certain way? And here, we have to see that her heart was desiring something that wasn't the Lord. Right? That, that her greatest desire was not the Lord in obedience through that. It was what she was leaving behind. And it cost her life. And so we need to look at that and think, man, wait a second. Disobedience has a price. And pillar of salt, I have to think, even though it's, I really do think this is the weirdest death. Like, there's all sorts of craziness happening. Like, why a pillar of salt? I think it's because they could see that, right? It is, she didn't just disintegrate. She didn't disappear. There's a visual of her, right? And if you think salt, if you want to go into the extreme, and I don't know if this is taking it too far, but we're going to go there because I already thought about it. But, right, she's preserved, right? Isn't that what salt does? Am I right on that? Salt, she, it, it preserved her in a sense, and it marked her death. There's one of the commentators, I didn't pull this out, he talks about that she's still there. I'm like, I don't want to, we don't need to go wandering and looking for that. But the fact is that they could see what happened. It was a visual representation of what disobedience to direct command causes. It costs our life. It costs our life, and it costs hers, and so we should learn from that, that obedience matters. Don't look back. That's exactly what 
Paul was talking about in Philippians 3 when he says, I strain forward, right? Forgetting what lies behind. I go forward. And that's what we need to do, press forward. Because everything that we've been called out of has nothing to compare to the desires of Christ and who he should be. That motivates us. It's not, we don't obey so that we'll get something, but we obey because he's given us his life. He is the most desirable thing, so we don't need to look back. There's nothing comparable. And I didn't want to pull all the stuff that you can find, but I encourage you, go look at that. Go, go look up that idea of, of straining towards Christ and seeing him as the greatest, the most beautiful, most desirable thing. Because when we see him for that, this world doesn't matter. It fades away because we realize there's something better. And so we can obey. Don't look back. Right? Christ tells, you, tells us that, that those who put their hands to the plow and look back aren't fit for his kingdom. Right? So we've been called to live. Obedience matters. It's not just accept Christ and, and submit to him and then just keep living your life. You can't submit to him if you don't submit to him. You have to obey. And then finally, one of the crazier ones, the, the last part of this chapter is the fourth way we see sin, and that's, that's Lot and his daughters and the incest relationship that we have going on here. And it's crazy to look at. It's crazy to think. And, and really, I think one of the craziest things you can look at is this happening, yes, is crazy. But the fact that it did happen after what they just witnessed, right? You think about that for a second. They just witnessed an entire valley being destroyed. And then their next thing is to think, we don't have anyone to save us. Really? Like, you just had someone save you, right? They don't get it. Oh, we don't have a man here to save us. Well, you, apparently you don't need one because they had been saved and it still happens, right? So don't believe, they didn't believe that God would take care of them when he just pulled them out of it. And they didn't deserve to be out of it. They're lingering around. What's happened? But so often we do the same thing. We, we see all of this idea and then we just fall into temptation. And the thing I want to point out about this idea is when we look at Lot in this section, verse 30 through 38, when we look at that, there's two things we need to notice about temptation. One that happens when you're alone and you're out, right? He's out in the cave now, which by the way is where he was told to go the first time. And he said, go out of the valley, go to the cave. So now he's like, no, I gotta go to this city. Well, he can't stay in that city, Why? To me, it's because the other people saw what happened and they're like, wait a second, you were there and you got to, don't come to us, right? There's something wrong with this guy. Like his city just got destroyed. So now he's in the cave where he's supposed to go originally. He's alone and that's when temptation strikes and it also strikes when he's under the influence, right? I don't know what happened to cause that, but that's why we have to be aware specifically. I don't, I don't think this is saying don't drink, but I think it's saying that don't be under the influence of that because that's when temptations happen. Right? And if you've ever known anyone, maybe yourself has had a history. I know when I was um, younger, I had, a, I had a huge problem with alcohol. And, and the thing I remember about it is when I was under the influence, I had no, I was brave, right? I was that guy. I could say what I wanted to to anyone. But maybe there's a reason that you don't say those things, right? Because we don't, I don't, I don't think this would have happened had he been sober, right? Can we, we agree with that, right? This isn't going to happen if he's sober, right? Because the daughters knew that. They purposely got him drunk. Why? Because he doesn't have any ability. He doesn't know what's going on. And then what happens? He has two sons or grandsons, however you want to call them, that we see happening. But one, one last thing before we conclude. If you look at the end, verse 38, or 37, sorry. He's the father of Moab, the first son. And what's really interesting about that is because all the time, a lot of times we try to cast people out. Like, these are sons who were born out of incest. Like, why in the world? What's going on? But... But if you read that word, he's the father of the Moabites, does that, does that ring a bell? Because what's interesting about that is one of the only women listed in Jesus' genealogy was a Moabite, Ruth. What an amazing thing that it doesn't matter where you came from, that God can still use you in that. Because she should have not, these people, no, they should not be in there. They're enemies of everything that's happening. Yet a Moabite, woman is listed in Jesus' genealogy. I think that's an amazing testimony of God's grace and that it doesn't matter how you were born or who you were, that he can call you out of that. That he can use you no matter what happens. And so as we kind of conclude up and, and look at this, I know it's kind of been a, 
more of a, a talking, I guess. I don't know. It just seem, there's two things that I think we should do that all of us should be doing right now as we look at chapter 19. The first thing is that we should consider our sin. You should consider your sin. You should consider your sin because until we actually admit that as Christian we're still drawn to sin, we're still prone to wonder, we can't speak into anyone else's life. Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, depending on what you've been taught, a church father, he said this. I thought it was perfect. He said, we must seem to admit wickedness in ourselves if we wish to refrain others from wickedness. And so we should see it in ourselves. If we wish to, to refrain, other people to refrain from it, we should admit to it in ourselves. And then he continues, it says, my own iniquity, not another's, whether perpetrated upon me or upon others, is that from which I must be aware of damnation. And so what he's saying in there is that first we need to admit that we're sinners. It's okay if we're going to call other people. Like we can't call people to stop sinning if we say that we don't have sin. Right? Because then it's like, well, you're just trying to be perfect, right? Why are you judging me? No, we are sinners. The, the difference is that our sin's been paid for by Christ on the cross. And we understand that and we submit our lives to that. And so that you can draw them to it. And I'm still drawn to that. I'm not perfect. But then he keeps going. He says that my own iniquity, not another's. And what he's saying there is that we should be more worried about our own sin than the sins of others because our sin's what's going to convict us, right? That, that we're so quick to point out sin of other people that we forget. It's kind of like taking the, the log out of your own eye. We have to consider our sin. That's not a bad thing. It's not, it's not unhealthy to consider your sin, especially when you have the gospel. It actually drives you to worship, Right? And so to avoid that, to consider your sin, to understand what you're doing, here's some practical things that I think you should do. You should develop some disciplines so that you can avoid temptations, you can overcome those. And, and some of those are just, just regularly pray, right? Just, just be people of prayer. Pray that you would avoid temptation, or not, or not necessarily avoid, but when it happens, that you would overcome it. That you would take the way out, that the Spirit would provide that. Feed yourself with positive things instead of the things of the world. So Let's spend more time in the Bible than watching everything that we know we shouldn't, right? That doesn't make you a weird person. It makes you a Christian. And then, and then develop relationships. If you can't talk to anyone about your sin, you're not going to overcome it. If you can't be honest about your temptations, then you can't overcome those. You need to be. We're, the whole point of our church is we want to be people who are in relationship with other people. We want to get to know people, and that means it's going to get messy, but you're going to be better for it. Seek out relationships. Find someone to be in a relationship with. And then ultimately, confess your sin, right? Consider your sin and then confess your sin. Understand it, right? Don't remain in that. It's not this, it, don't linger, right? Don't, don't act like Lot and say, I know what's happening. I know the penalty, the wages of sin is dead. Don't linger in it. Confess it. Repent. Move forward. And so right now, there's some of you that have never done that. There's some of you, you might think that you have, but you haven't. Repent. Don't leave today without dealing with the sin that's plaguing and captivating your heart. Jonathan Edwards, if you don't know who he was, a pastor of the Great Awakening, considered probably the best American pastor, if you can call him American, because it was before all that. He's in, he has a famous sermon, what's considered, a lot of people consider the most famous famous sermon ever preached. It's called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I've got a, I've got a copy of it right up here if you want to look at it. It's a little book. Sinners in the Hands, and it got him in trouble because he basically told everyone they're going to hell because they're sinners, right? He's a little more forthright than we are, but the very, the very last statement, paragraph, if you will, of that sermon, he says this, therefore let everyone who is out of Christ now awaken and fly from the wrath to come. So if you've, you've seen this in chapter 19, if you've seen this, then if you're outside of Christ, awaken and fly from the wrath to come. And he says, the Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great number of you. Let everyone fly from Sodom. What an amazing, it just struck me. What an amazing thing that this, this sermon, this famous sermon, right in the middle of the, the biggest revival that our continent has ever seen. It's Genesis 19 that he goes to. He said, now fly away from that. 
Like there's the wrath to come. God pours out wrath on sin. So fly, if you're outside of Christ, wake up and fly away from that. And when he says that, that it's now, the Almighty God's now undoubtedly hanging over you, that, that, that's, there's some of you right now that are dealing with some stuff. And you need to. That's conviction. And so don't leave today without coming to this realization, even if it's for the first time, that you are absolutely dead in your sin. And there's absolutely nothing you can do but thanks to God. Through Jesus Christ, we're now heirs. See that? Why did Lot get saved? Last thing and we're done. Why did, why did Lot get saved? Abraham's intercession, right? It was Abraham that interceded for Lot. It wasn't anything that Lot did. Surely God's not okay with him offering his daughters, right? Like that, that should have right there, right? But why? Because Abraham interceded for him. So are you going gonna to do that? That was the second time that Abraham had saved him in this story. 14 and now. And so what an amazing thing that, that while Abraham intercedes for Lot, we, we have something better because God sent his own son for us. He didn't just intercede for us. He died for you. Like the wrath that was poured out on your sin was poured out on him on the cross. And so all we have to do is submit to that, acknowledge that, that we're sinners, and accept that. What an amazing thing. And so if that's you today, don't leave. Stay there and do the work that you need to do. Because when we understand that we are sinners and we consider our sin and we confess our sin, then we're free to live a life free of guilt and worry about having to be someone that we aren't because we know in Christ that we've gained everything that we didn't deserve, yet we're clothed in his righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you. God, I thank you that you loved us. God, I thank you that you see us in our sin. Gosh, in the sin that, that we don't even want to acknowledge, God, the, the sin that we hope no one else finds out about, God, I thank you that you loved us despite that sin. God, I thank you that that sin is not hidden to you. God, I just pray that we would be people that practice true hospitality, that we would open our homes and our lives to others, that we would serve them with passion, that we would show them the love that you've shown us. God, I just pray that, God, I just pray that we would notice when we are slowly fading toward the things of the world. God, that your spirit would point that out, that we would see it and not be overcome by temptation. God, that we would not fill our hearts with images and sins that culture says is okay. God, I just pray that we would understand the depth of the depravity of our hearts. God, that as we grow more in our knowledge of you, that we would become more aware of our sin and that the gospel would become more and more powerful in our lives so that it would propel us into a life of obedience. And it's in your name we pray, amen.